All that stuff should be centered around Christ if he really is who he says he is in our own lives. That everything, the whole universe is about him and points to his glory. And we having been purchased by his death, burial, and resurrection from the grave, all of those things mean that we are his and that we are now centered around him as well. But the question is, are we living that out? That's what we talked about last week. This week, we're going to take it a step further, and we're going to talk about being a confessional community, a Christ-centered confessional community. We're going to really stick on that word confessional. So I want you to look in your notes that you received today. I want you to get those ready if you want to follow along with us. Uh, I want to kind of start off a little bit further in this by, by saying a couple of things as I will be confessional to lead us off, right? Knowing that God was leading us back to this town, my wife began to notice a few things about me that showed that I was a little nervous. Now, I wasn't really nervous to come in here with you and talk about church things and talk about the mission. I was nervous because I knew I was going to run into people that knew me on the other side of the cross. I actually talked to a friend of mine who's a pastor in the area, and he did the same thing. He said the hardest thing was running into ex-girlfriends at Walmart. He said, once you get used to that, it's pretty easy going. Now, I will say that that's probably not going to be the hardest thing for me because I lived a life antithetical to the gospel of Jesus for years. And the harder part of that was that I actually grew up in church, and I actually grew up in a lifestyle where you, you don't show those kind of things, you hide that kind of stuff. And you live a certain way at church or a certain way amongst the friends who know you that way. And you can live however you want in other venues. You kind of live in one or two or maybe three or four different worlds. And you're spinning plates the whole time trying to keep it all straight. I don't know if any of you grew up in that way, but that's kind of the way I grew up. And it's one of those things that's really difficult because I think most of us, most of us have been taught a I'll put truth with a little t, a truth that's not really a truth. We've been taught a truth about church life that you can't really be who you really are when you go to church. You can't really be what you actually are day in and day out or the way you are at work or the way you are at home. You've got to dress a little different. You've got to speak a little different. You've got to act a little different. You've got to, you've got to put on this persona that says that you're this good person. And if you really are committed to the faith, right, you're supposed to put that persona on all the time. You can't let anybody see what's below the veneer. And what I'm afraid of is that many of us have missed a major part of the gospel when we live in a world where we have to act like we really aren't who we are. And I'm not saying we should let things go and do whatever our, our sinful nature wants us to do. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying whatever we want to do deep inside that we know goes against the gospel. I'm just saying that we try to cover up all the blemishes. It's like getting up in the morning and looking in the mirror and looking away real fast because we don't want to see it, and we try to cover it up so nobody else can see it. We don't like that stuff getting out there. One of the things I told my wife as we were praying through coming here was that I was going to have to eat a lot of humble pie when I came here. And her response was, what a wonderful opportunity for the gospel of Jesus to be made great. That's exactly the way it is to live in a confessional lifestyle. I want you to look with me in Romans chapter 10. We're going to start back in verse 4, and we're going to go through verse 13, but we're really going to focus on verses 9 and 10. There's so much here, there's no way you'll be willing to stay long enough for me to exegete and expound on all of this. So I'm going to focus on two verses today, but I want to read the whole context. 
So if you would, look with me in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 4. This is a continued conversation that Paul's having with the Romans in his letter. And he's basically saying, I really wish that all of Israel would come to faith, but they've missed the point, right? Pick it up in verse 4. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's basically saying that Christ is ending the law. He, he is the fulfillment, and he is the new covenant. We don't have to try to attain perfection anymore, which we never could in the first place. The law was intended to show us that we cannot make it. We cannot do it. And it leaves us looking for the Savior who would be coming. And Paul's saying here that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Look at verse 5. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And that implication was something taught back in that day, that the person who obeys all these commandments outwardly, that that person will find life in those commandments. And he contradicts that. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What he's saying is you can't do good enough to rise up to heaven yourself and bring Christ down. You can't, you can't do good enough. You can't be good enough to go down into to the depths of the abyss and bring Christ up from the grave. He's done all that for us. The old covenant was you had to do it all to show you that you couldn't do it all so that you saw the need for the Savior who would come. And now we tend to go back to that same way over and over and over again. Jesus is good to get in the door, but now we've got to put on the morality, put on the ethics in such a way that nobody sees the wrinkles or the cracks or the thinness of the veneer that we put forth before anybody else. And so when people see the junk, we try to cover it up real quick, excuse it, or we try to put the blame on someone else or call them out for something so they quit looking at ours. This is the normal thing. This is what was going on here in this time, but look what he says here. Again, verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One of the simplest statements of the gospel and salvation, but one of the most completely overwhelming in depth, as we'll see in a moment. He then turns it upside down. He says in verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. In other words, there's no distinction between anybody. There's only one Lord, and it's Jesus, and he's the same Lord over all. Bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me pray for us before we go further. Father, you are the only one who can help us to understand this truth. Would you illumine our minds to understand what you're trying to tell us today? Would you work in our hearts to make us more into the image of Christ today as we leave here than we looked like him when we came in? And Lord, would you do that by helping us not to put on the veneer or to cover up the blemishes but to live lives of confessional realness 
amongst ourselves and those outside of here as we leave, so that your son Jesus would be made much of. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at verse 9 and 10 again. He says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice that he puts the words confess and believe in an order here, and he's going to turn it upside down in a minute in verse 10, because what he's saying is that these two aren't really separate. You see, the Greek mindset, our mindset actually, we like to separate things out into categories and separate them all up. He's trying to point out that they're really one and the same. He goes on and says it like this, verse 9 into 10, we'll read 9 again. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, so you're saying it out loud, that he is Lord, that he is the king. That same word, by the way, is, is the, the Greek word that's for the Hebrew, Yahweh. So it's said over 600 times in the Bible, in the Old Testament. So he's saying that he is God. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, he takes it and he swaps it upside down because what he's trying to say is that these two things happen together or they don't really happen at all. These two things are not saying that one actually justifies and one saves. He's actually saying that these two together is what will happen if you are justified in Christ and if you are saved from your sin under the blood sacrifice of Jesus, not of your own works righteousness, but under the work of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection and his perfection, taking on, the sin, taking on the death that we deserve, the one who is perfect, so that we can live the life that only he deserves. Because he did that for us, because of his work, if we confess it with our mouth, if we believe it with our heart, we will be saved. Now, note this, that in the original language, the idea in that is this present ongoing force, just like in the English. If you believe and keep on believing, if you confess and keep on confessing. It doesn't mean that you earn it and you keep it because you keep on confessing it. It means the result of you being saved is that you will continue to believe and continue to confess. Jesus is saying at one point, he says, how do you know that they'll be saved? He says, those who persevere to the end will be saved. They will carry on. That's what the Baptists, we like to call, once saved, always saved, right? It's not exactly the way the Bible language is, but... You and I need to understand some truths today, church, that this idea that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, or that with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, is true no matter, it's true no matter what you think about the simplicity of salvation or its hugeness. But most of the time, we only like to think about this and the idea of it being this simple truth. All you got to do is confess that Jesus is Lord and believe it in your heart, and you'll be a believer now. You'll be saved. You'll be a Christian. And that is what he says. But the implications of this text is that it goes on and on and on, and you cannot separate this. And why am I harping on it? Because it matters to the nth degree. Let me just point out a few ways that it matters. If you've got your notes ready. The obvious one is number one here, just saying the same thing. If you believe with your mouth, confess. Confess and believe that Jesus is Lord. That's what it means to be confessional at the utmost. Confess and believe that Jesus is Lord. Now, that's the gimme. He's saying that he means Lord. That's easy to say, isn't it? 
It's so easy for us to say that. How many times have you heard that language? How many times have you repeated that language in your own mind, in your own heart, and really not gone any further about what that really means? If we're going to be a Christ-centered, confessional community, which is what I believe the Bible calls us to be, as we'll see, you have to take it further than just simply stating that he is Lord. You have to understand the depths. You begin to mine the depths. Not to become saved, but to begin to live in that truth, you have to begin to mine the depths of that statement. That's what we're going to do. Let me give you a few verses to help us to understand that this means, first of all, that we are saying that he is fully God, master, our boss, our king, that he is the one that is truly over us. 1 John says it several times. 1 John 2, 23, no one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. 1 John 4, 2 through 3, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. You hear that? Everyone who confesses that Jesus is from God is of God. Everyone who does not confess that Jesus is from God is not of God. That's what he's saying is that if you don't speak the truth that Jesus is God, he's saying you're not his. That's a hard statement. Don't let it roll over you gently. He says, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. 1 John 4, 15, a little later, he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And in the second letter to Ephesus, he says this, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such one is the deceiver and the antichrist. In other words, he's saying those who go out talking about religion but don't talk about Jesus being the king and being Lord, they're the antichrist. He's using a plural statement there. So we need to be careful that we're not actually being like the antichrist that he's talking about. Are we going about speaking about religion and faith and, and, and God in general, but not ever getting to Jesus? Because everything hinges on Jesus and that he is Lord. The question is, is he really our Lord? So let's take a second and let's just break this down. We're going to go fairly quickly through some of these. Some are going to take a little longer because we're going to let Scripture speak for us. I don't want to get up here. If anything I say today is not founded in Scripture, you can chunk it on the way out. But if it is, we've got to deal with it, right? Thank you. <laughs> so if we have to confess and believe that Jesus is Lord, we also have to understand what that means in the sense that we have to confess and believe that Jesus is sovereign. That's an easy word to write down. It's a big word to understand. And I don't mean that in the sense that I understand it and you don't. I don't mean that at all. I mean that I'm learning every day what this means, and I have to be continually taught what it means for God to be sovereign. My question to you when I say that word, that Jesus is sovereign, is do you believe in a religion where God is little and man is big, or do you believe in a religion where man is little and God is big? How highly do you think of self in light of how great God is? Do you believe that he truly is sovereign? The scriptures point out that he is. Let me give it to you from a a place that you might not expect it. In Revelation chapter 6, the Lamb of God is opening up these things that bring craziness on the earth, right? 
Verse 1 and 2, he says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened up one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and his rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And he goes on down to the fifth seal. It says, When he opened, this is the Lamb, this is Christ. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? O sovereign Lord. You may think for a minute that God the Father is the sovereign, but God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all share that quality of being sovereign. Different in roles, equal in essence and value, and they share their sovereignty. And he is sovereign whether we believe it or not, whether we admit it or not. The question I have is, do you regularly confess to yourself, maybe even to others, that he is sovereign in your own life? What if you got up every day and began to ask yourself these questions? Am I confessing that Jesus is sovereign? How about this one? Are you confessing and believing that Jesus is all-powerful? Sovereign means that he's king. There's nothing that escapes his ability or his understanding or his foresight or his determination. And the second is that he is all-powerful, that he can do anything he wants to do because he is God. Anything that he would like to do, he will do, as long as it stays within his character, and he will do that because he is all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. This is something that many of us need to be reminded of. Let me ask it like this. Let's go back to the beginning. Let me ask this. Do you confess and believe that Jesus is Lord and that you are not? Do you confess and believe that Jesus is sovereign and that you are not? Or do you think that you control everything? Do you think that you control things in your life? When something goes bad, do you think, I got to go fix that right now, I got to do this thing, or do you run to the one who's in control of all of it? How do you respond to the things that come up in life that throw you off kilter? Do you run to the sovereign king who's all-powerful? Or do you run to self? Or do you run to the friend who always has the best advice? Where are you running? Who do you actually believe? Have we looked at your life? How would it filter out? Oftentimes, I run to self. I look to me. I think I have all the answers. I think I've got it all figured out. I think I know all the scripture I need to know. Instead of running to the king and crying out to him. But he's all-powerful. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24, it says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is our power. He's the only true power that we can tap into that is all eternal. And we don't tap into it for what we want out of it. We don't tap into it to be healthy, wealthy, and wise for self. We tap into that power because we want to be with him, and we enjoy that power because we trust in his sovereignty, we trust in his control, we trust in him being all-powerful so that we can be with him and be used for his glory as we enjoy him in the process. But are you living in such a way that you really believe that he is all-powerful? You may be wondering, what does this mean about confessing? Are you confessing that in your moment of need or in the moment of need of others, that he is the one that is all-powerful? It sounds cliche, doesn't it? I mean, let's get real. If you have a friend that's struggling, you could easily go up and say, oh, hey, don't worry about it. God is all-powerful. I don't advise you to say that that way, by the way. 
But in your head, you could think it, you could say it in a different way, and it'd be true. And it sounds cliche, so much so that oftentimes we don't even want to say it. We try to think of something else to say. But where are you personally going to in your time of need? Going a little slow. Here we go. Ready? Confess and believe, fourthly, not that he's all-powerful or sovereign, but confess and believe that he has all authority. Remember at the very end before Jesus goes up to prepare a place for us, and he's about to send the Holy Spirit, and he tells his disciples, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. Right? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you to do, and I will be with you to the end of the age. But he says, he has all authority. Is his authority absolute in your life? When he says, don't do this, or you shouldn't live like that, are you obeying? Are you really living out the truth that he is fully in authority? Is it unlimited authority that everything that you want or could do or think about doing is really submitted to him? Is it limitless in that way? Or do you hold back a certain area of that that you need to confess out today to him and repent and turn back to him in? It's so easy for us to do the religious thing and check the box and have that part of our life that we do. He doesn't want that. That's junk to him. He wants you all. He gave his all to buy you all so that you could be his all together with him for all eternity because he loves us that much. That's what he did. Is his authority universal in every situation you face? If it's not, we need to repent and turn back to him, confess our need and go to him in that way. In other words, are you confessing and believing that Jesus is the Savior? Hey, and that you are not. That you are not. That I am not. Are you confessing and believing that he's the one and that you and I are not? Look at the text here. In Romans 10, he says this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Are you really believing that he's the Savior? And with the mouth one confesses. They're interlocked, inextricably linked. There's no dividing them. If you are his, if he is yours, you will believe it and keep on believing it You will confess it and keep on confessing. And when you don't, this is where Luther's quote from last week comes in, you will do what all of life really is for the Christian. You will repent from those ways of not believing and turn back to the Savior who is everything or he is nothing. That's what our whole life is. Sounds like a sad mill that we run in like a hamster, doesn't it? If you think about it, be honest with you, to outside thought processes, to say that your whole life is about realizing how much you messed up and then turning around and trying to get back on the way but knowing you're going to mess up over and over and over again, that's a cruddy life to live when you say it like that, isn't it? But the beauty is it's not about doing. We've got to get it out of our head. It's not about us being Christians to do things. It's about us being saved by the Christ to be in relationship with him, and that means turning back to him because the reason we sin is not because we do something wrong in its essence or because we don't do something right. It's because we turned away from the Savior. And therefore, we do things that aren't for his glory. It's because we've run away from the relationship. We kept hitting last week, come back to Christ. Turn away from that and come back to Christ. That's all of life is about repenting back to the Lord, back to the one who is worth more than all things combined. 
right? That he really is the Savior, that he gave everything for you, and because he's worth more than all the universe, it was enough that he paid out his blood on the cross to pay for you and for me and for everyone else who would believe. It's enough. But church, I think we struggle because we will not confess and believe that Jesus is our righteousness. We think we have to earn it. We think we have to hold it. We think we have to present ourselves in such a way that everybody would look at us and go, hey, well, that's a really good Christian. Hey, well, that's a really great person over there. They look kind of like Jesus. Has anybody ever come up to you and said that to you? Not me. Especially not those that have known me for a while. Especially not those that have known me for a long while. Nobody's ever said I look like that. They said I look broken. They said I look like I'm a little better than I used to be. They said I look a little better than this person in that way. And then they realized they were lying because it wasn't. I'm not any better in some ways. There's nothing good about us that is good enough that would say that we are a representation of Jesus good enough that other people can look at us and think, hey, there you are. I want to be like you. That's not where we see it. We can never be our own righteousness. We can never be it. And that's because there's only one person that can be our righteousness, and that is Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1. We talked about it the first time I came here to preach. We talked about it last week. And like I said, you're going to hear these things a lot. We're going to see it right here again. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 and 31. And because of him, because of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not in ourselves. When we boast in self, like that we've accomplished something, we're actually detracting from the glory of God. Every time somebody says to me something about my preaching or something about my words or something about my demeanor being good and that they really appreciate it, when I take that in, it can really quickly puff me up. It can really quickly make me feel like I've done something great. And that immediately detracts from the work that God has done in or through me, if any at all. Because it's his work for his glory, for his namesake. Every bit of our lives is for that purpose. And when you see what he's done for you, your heart is turned to love him so much that you don't want the glory. You want to put it all on him because he alone deserves it. He alone. He is our righteousness. He is our wisdom. He is our salvation. He is all these things. So this is what it means for us. You're wondering, what does this mean? What do I got to do, right? That's what we always get down to. What do I have to do? I'm going to tell you to confess and make yourself known to people in a way that you probably don't want to do. If you want to really see this faith family become a faith family that people are drawn to, then let's start confessing our inadequacies. Let's start confessing our failures. Let's start confessing our sins. Let's start confessing our needs. Instead of putting forth that we don't have any problems. Instead of putting forth that we don't have anything wrong with us. Let's let's start confessing the things about who we are that we're afraid for people to know so they can rest in the fact that the only one we really need to know is Jesus. And that when we confess our struggles, confess our needs, confess our faults, he's the one that gets the glory. Because then he's the one to be seen to be good, not us. So the first one I want to point you at here. It's confess and believe that you continually need Jesus. 
That sounds an awful lot like one of the points from last week, because it is. I feel like I need this, as Luther said it, to be beat into my head continually until I finally believe it. We need to confess and believe that we really continually need Jesus. All right, are you ready to write down some verses? Two of you are. Great. <laughs> Get ready. You're going to need to work together probably. If you're in a Sunday school class, just work it out which ones you miss. Proverbs 28, 13 through 14. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. When you don't confess your sins to the Lord, you harden your heart toward him. You want to be blessed? Confess your sins. You'll be blessed with the relationship. When we talk about the riches that are at the right hand of God that can be ours, God the Father, that, those riches are the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. That's Jesus. It's not about getting things or stuff or personas or, or valuables. It's about getting the one who is Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father. Acts 19, 18. This is when this crazy thing happened. They gave the gospel and it changed the world so much around them in the book of Acts that, that people started doing crazy stuff. They started getting rid of all their witchcraft stuff. They started selling all that stuff. They started coming together and confessing their sins before the Lord and before one another. It says in Acts 19, verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Can you imagine what it would look like if we had a service in here and we were worshiping the Lord and people got up and started confessing their sins and repenting before one another? First of all, some of you might run for the hills. I would want to. We might think about the day that the church went berserk. The first self-righteous church in Pascagoula, right? If you don't know that, young folks, go look it up. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast. Hold to it like you will not let it go. Hold to it like it means everything to you. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He knows. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He already knows. Just confess and tell him you're sorry and tell him you want better and tell him you can't, but he can. And will he do it for you and through you and in you? Just confess it out. And be brought back into that relationship. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast that confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. You're going to fail at being faithful, but he will never fail at being faithful. You're going to mess up, but he will never mess up. You're going to not follow through, but he has always followed through. Put your hope in him. Don't put hope in self. Run from that lie of the world and the enemy. Don't put hope in self. Put hope in the one who always fulfills his promises. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In that form of righteous, what it's talking about is the one who loves God and repents and turns to him regularly and finds their righteousness in Christ. 
1 John 1, 8 through 10. This is a question for us, right? This is the last one of this section. I want you to hear this really closely, church, because this is really hard for me. Regularly, I have to go back to this chapter, to this verse, these couple of verses, and ask myself, do, am I looking at myself in the mirror and not seeing some sin I need to repent of? I think, what do I need to repent of? If it takes me a couple of moments to think that through, these verses pop in my head. Commit them to memory and let them run over you like the mercy and grace of the Christ's blood on the cross to renew you and refresh you daily to depend on him. Listen to this. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we think we have not sinned, it's because we do not understand sin. We are made in the image of God to perfectly reflect his glory back to him and back to the world around us and we fail at that miserably when we take our eyes off of him and we begin to turn away from him because we cannot reflect what is not hitting us directly. And so therefore we fall short of the glory of God regularly. So confess and believe that you need Jesus. A little faster, confess and believe that you want Jesus. Do you want him? Do you really want him? If that's not a desire of your heart to want him, then maybe you don't know him the way that you think you do. Often days I wake up and I'm not thinking a bit about him in the very beginning until the Lord, the Spirit, something, my wife encourages me. Oftentimes I have to repent even of not thinking of him when every breath is given by him. I'm sure I'm not alone. Do you even want him? Here's a question. You may say, yeah, I want him. Yeah, I do. Do you want him like this? At the end of the book of Revelation, John is telling us, about these last words of the Christ. And he makes a statement that we should be able to echo at the utmost, with the utmost fervor and joy. Listen to this statement. He says this. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. That's what Jesus says. Surely I am coming soon. And John says this. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Can you... Say that with everything within you right now, that you could cry out with everything and really want him to come right now. Or would you say, hey, no, no, not yet. Wait, I want to see this in my life first. I want a couple more years with these people first. I want to see a few more things in my kids first. I want to see this thing first. So you come, but not yet. Or would you confess with John and say, yes, come, Lord Jesus, Come. I encourage you to take that home. If you get nothing else this week, I want you to say, am I confessing that I want him to come sooner rather than later? As soon as I can have him and be in his presence where sin is eradicated and enjoy him without hindrance. Come, Lord Jesus, come now, please. Can you say that at the end of your prayers and mean it with everything within you? If you can't, there's some areas for us to repent of. Not that they're bad things. It's okay to love your kids and want to be with them. It's okay to love people and some things. It's all right. But if you love them more than you want Christ, that's where the problem is. That's why he says things like, you must hate your father and mother. It's not true hate, but it will look like hate to those around you because you want him more than anything. And there's no way to love anybody better than to love Christ most. There's no better love for self than to love Christ most. Come, Lord Jesus. 
We also have to confess and believe that you love him. John 15, 9 through 11 leads us into the last two of this part. He says, to us, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We talked about it last week. If you love him, you will abide in him. That means repenting and turning back to him. And you'll know that because you're living out the commandments. The commandments don't bring righteousness. He is our righteousness. But if he is ours and we love him and we abide in him, we will want to please him. Just like my little boys want to please me most of the time. Just like my little girls want to please me and make their dad happy most of the time. And it will lead to your joy because he's created us for our utmost joy. And our utmost joy is found when we're in relationship with him. We are satisfied with so many things that can never really satisfy. There's so many things that we let our hearts yearn for that can never truly give us joy. But we will find that we are most satisfied in this life when we are most satisfied in Christ. Anything less is not Christ-centered, confessional community. So confess and believe that you enjoy him. Not just that you love him, but that you enjoy him. If you can't confess that you enjoy him like that, then we have some repenting to do. Now, here's what I'll say to us as we can begin to close. Christ-centered confessional living changes everything. It changes everything about who you are because here's some things that, that get different about you and me. When you begin to confess that Christ is everything, when you begin to confess your need for him because of your failures and your sins and your problems and your struggles, it changes how you do everything else. No longer can you walk up to someone and talk to them about faith and about Jesus and sound like a condescending jerk because now you're just looking across the table saying, hey, yeah, I know, me too. I need, I need help. I struggle with that same thing. I don't look like it on the outside, but on the inside, I struggle with that thing. And you know what? It's okay. We don't want to struggle with that. We don't want to do those things, but God has made a way in Jesus. And you can have him too, and we're still going to have troubles, and we're still not going to do great, but you know what? We'll have the Savior, and that'll make everything better, and he won't leave us where we are because he loves us too much to leave us where we are. It's okay to not be okay. It's not okay to stay there. And he won't leave you there because he loves you too much. It changes everything when it's Christ-centered confessional living. When you begin to speak the truth, it changes the way you evangelize. It changes the way you see the world around you. It changes the way that you have your attitude in front of other people because you recognize that you're not doing anything apart from God's work within you. And now the way you live is giving glory to God or it's not. And if it's not, you just turn around, repent, run back to Jesus. Things get a lot easier. When the, the stuff gets on you, the divine interruptions hit you, how do you respond? Do you respond with hope? Okay, this is a big thing. I don't like this maybe, but it's all right because God can bring me through this thing. Maybe not the way I want it to be, but he will because he loves me, even if that means he takes me home with him. And that's okay because come, Lord Jesus, come. Because I want you above all things, Lord. If that's not your daily confession, and I confess it's not mine all the time either then we have some repenting to do not to earn salvation 
but just to run back to the one who came here for us. His step was way greater out of eternity into this place for your glorious salvation. And he loves you. He doesn't want you to do it to earn it or to please him in a way that says, hey, I'm paying you back. He wants you to do it because he wants you to love him because that's where you'll find your greatest joy. If you're not finding your joy in that thing and this sounds foreign to you, then we need to talk. We need to set up a time and sit down and talk or talk to anybody else right here that looks like they're smiling when they're leaving today. And see the joy that they have. Everything is changed. Because ultimately we confess and believe that Jesus alone deserves the glory. If everything in our lives is not centered around Christ, he's not getting the glory in those things. If everything in our lives is not centered around that stuff, then we are actually not who we think we are in Christ. And I can tell you, brothers and sisters, we're not who we think we are in Christ most of the time. We think that we're these great Christians. When you go out to eat today, when you get around the public today, and you think that, look at these people that didn't go to church today, right? I know sometimes people think that about you, right, because you're in the early service and you go home and change and then you go out to eat. (laughs) Right? So you know what I'm talking about. Don't look at them with eyes of disdain. Look at them with eyes of the reality that we are no different than anyone else apart from the work that Christ is doing or has done in us. And that he alone deserves the glory. Not me. Not you. He alone deserves the glory. What would it look like, church, if we began to confess that kind of truth everywhere we went? What would it look like if we began to confess our struggles, confess our needs? Man, people that say that they don't want to go because they're not good enough to go to church, that would change the tune, wouldn't it? People say that, man, look at all those hypocrites. You're right. I am, and you are too, and it's okay. We need Jesus. It would change the way this church is impacting this county. So I want to implore you to think about serving the Lord by being confessional in your walk with Him. Father, you are good and you are kind. And Lord, you are patient with us and you give us all that we need as you've given us Christ. As you empower us by your Holy Spirit, you make it so that we don't have to worry about whether or not we can do enough to earn our way to heaven. For Lord, you have paid the price in your son Jesus' blood on the cross. Lord, give us the strength by your Holy Spirit to speak of his name in front of others. Give us not strength in ourselves, but the strength of Christ as we lean into him, that we might confess our need for him so that he alone would receive the glory and so that we would be able to speak well of him. And Lord, open our eyes to the interruptions of our day that you have set up as divine appointments for us to be confessional of the greatness of God and the greatness of your son Jesus and our great need for him regularly so that you alone would be the one that people come to know and love and that we get to be a part of it. Lord, I ask that you would help us surrender all that to you today. Amen.